beloved saints, this is your God's word. It is perfect, it is eternal, it is life-giving, and it is worthy of your attention. Let us hear our God in his word. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Uh, so ends the reading of our God's word. Let, his, let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears. You know our doubts. And so we ask that you would flood that darkness with the light of your grace and the light of your peace that you would open our minds to the truth, that you would grant us hope, that you would grant us faith, that you would increase our understanding and allow us to receive you in your word. May your love shine through the pages of your scripture and may your spirit be with us as we read and hear. And may, may he grant us that we might delight in all that we encounter in your word. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. So we Christians, we talk about love a lot, and that's a good thing, and there's good reason. It's because God talks about love a lot, and he doesn't just uh, tell us that he loves us. He, he tells us that he himself is love, that, that our God is the very embodiment of love. But that raises the question, how do we know that he loves us. That is, how does he demonstrate it? Uh, and, and what does that mean for our lives? What does God's love mean for how we live in this world? These are important questions. And they are the very sorts of questions that the book of Malachi seeks to answer. And today we're beginning a study. It won't be real long. Malachi is a short book. Um, I would say four chapters, but chapter four is so short, it's like three and a half chapters. Uh, and we're going to look through this book over the next eight or so weeks. Uh, Malachi is a minor prophet, which simply means Malachi is one of the shorter prophetic books. There are 12 shorter books. They're called the minor prophets. Prophets were messengers. In fact... Uh, Malachi actually just means my messenger. It might have been his name or it might have just been his description. Uh, prophets were sent by God uh, to God's people to call them to repentance and to forgiveness should they turn from their sins. 
And the book of Malachi, it's interesting, it's arranged around these, uh, a series of dialogues between God and Israel. Uh, it's written shortly after Ezra and Nehemiah, so what, keeping in mind historically what that means, uh, the, the Israelites for a long time had disobeyed God, they had, and he said, okay, you're going on time out for 70 years, and they were taken away, uh, the northern tribes into Assyria, the southern tribes into Babylon for 70 years, and now they've been brought back into the land and they've rebuilt the temple Um, it's not been rebuilt to its former glory but it's doing the job and yet the people by this time have grown disillusioned they thought that returning to the promised land would kind of mean like that all their problems would suddenly disappear they envisioned a life of comfort and ease and prosperity and yet their life continues to be hard. It's full of the mundane. Life is not an adventure. It is a slog. And they bring forth a living every day through toil and sweat. Enemies are still a constant threat. They still have to be vigilant, manage their army, watch the borders. Tragedy still strikes. Injuries still happen. Life is still hard. And the Israelites have begun to grow distant from God and even bitter towards him. And and that that distance, that bitterness is showing in a lack of obedience to God's commands and it's showing in their half-hearted worship when they come to the temple. And so God sends Malachi to speak to them. Uh, And that word, uh, at the very beginning of verse 1, the oracle uh, uh, in verse 1 is really better translated uh, burden. It just sounds weird, so so the translators translate it oracle. But it it says the burden uh, of the Lord sent by Malachi. And this word shows up in a few prophets. It shows up in Zechariah and Isaiah and Malachi. And it's reserved for the heaviest of messages that God sends. There's something very heavy on the Lord's heart. And he is sending Malachi to address it. He's sending them to address Israel's drifting hearts. And hearts is a good word because this message in in the book of Malachi is about hearts. It's about God's heart heart, and it's about Israel's heart. It's about their questioning whether or not God loves them and God's question about whether or not they love him. And so it's time for a frank and an open conversation between God and Israel. And today we're going to start that conversation with the first question, the one on the hearts of the Israelites, does God love us? Uh, Next week we will begin the other question where God says to Israel, okay, how have you loved me? But that's next week. Um, It'll get heavy real fast. But first that question. Israel is asking God, do you even love us? And God's answer is an emphatic yes. And he has a few ways to demonstrate it. Three ways he's going to demonstrate it. The first is, I've demonstrated my love by conquering your enemies. Second, I've, con- I've demonstrated my love by humbling you so that you might know your need for salvation. 
And finally, I have humbled you by bearing your burden, and we'll understand this better, bearing our burden by sending his son to do that for us and to rescue us from our sins. So that's what we're going to see as we look through Malachi 1, 1 to 5 this morning. And the message when we see all of these things put together is simply this. God's love is demonstrated not in him keeping us from trials, but in his doing whatever is necessary to save us. That is where we find his love. That's what we're going to see. So let's start with God's demonstration of love in conquering our enemies. Uh, It comes in response to what God knows will be Israel's objection to his declaration of love for them. Uh, He knows that they don't believe it. And we're going to come back in a few minutes to why they don't believe that God loves them. But for now, he knows what they're going to say. They're going to say, prove it. We don't believe that you really love us. And so he begins in verse 2 by reminding them that he chose their ancestor Jacob. Remember, Jacob's the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And, And God chose Jacob over his older brother Esau to be the heir of the promises, even while they were still in the womb, before they had done anything good or bad, uh, so uh, that, that it wasn't a matter of justice, it wasn't a matter of merit or who earned God's favor. It was simply an act of love. God chose to bless Jacob, to love him, to care for him and his descendants. But that promise to care for him was not a new promise. It was a promise made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Uh, God uh, was choosing through whom he would continue to fulfill those promises made to Abraham. He had done this with Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, He chose Isaac the younger uh, over Ishmael the older. And now he's doing it again with Jacob, choosing Jacob over his his twin brother Esau. And the promise that God had made to Abraham, uh, this promise was a bit important. It would chart the course of history for all of humanity. God promised to bless Abraham first with with an earthly land and a family and and eventually a kingdom. But that was just the tip of the iceberg of what God was really promising. There was something all of these were meant to point to, something greater, something eternal. God was promising heaven to all who, regardless of their ethnicity, would place their trust in God as Abraham had. Now, in the midst of all of those wonderful promises, God included this promise. And I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. In other words, God uh, told Abraham that as his chosen agent of blessing, he had a unique place of honor in this world, and, and, and he would guard him from his enemies, and he would, he would curse those who, who attacked Abraham, and then that honor would be passed on to Isaac, and eventually Jacob. So God's love for Abraham, for Isaac, and for Jacob meant his special care. It meant that any who attacked them would incur God's wrath And God was about to prove to Israel that he had kept that promise. 
Edom in, in verse 4 is the nickname that Esau uh, was given when, remember when he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of red stew? Well, the Hebrew word for red is Adam, and, uh, and so Edom sounds like the word for red, and so it becomes his nickname. He's just called, hey, red. And um, Esau's descendants then became known as the Edomites, the reds. And the Edomites had not been particularly kind to the Israelites. They had mistreated the descendants of Jacob. And so God kept his promise. He shattered their home. He sent them running. Uh, This is what the book of Obadiah is all about. God's judgment on the Edomites. And so when God rehearses his history of judgment on Edom in verse 3, he's saying, have I not kept my promises? What greater proof of my love do you need? But he's not done. In verse 4, he says, and I'm going to keep doing it. My love towards you in the past is meant to give you confidence that I'll do the same in the future. So the Edomites, they can rebuild what I've torn down, and I'll just tear it down again. So long as I am on your side, your enemies will never truly triumph over you. He promises them that they will see this with their own eyes and they will know God's love for them, verse 5. Now, I think we hear this and, and it's easy to have our 21st century American sensibilities bothered. <laughs> what kind of God brags about destroying enemies? That's so first century. That's right. But those are the kinds of words that are spoken from the luxury of comfort. Only those who aren't used to the threat of enemies seeking their destruction would ever presume to lecture the world about not being defended from their enemies. But here's the thing. We all have an enemy who wants to destroy us. Just because the devil is unseen to human eyes doesn't make him less real or less of a threat. And he does want to destroy you and your eternity. Not so much because he hates you, though he does, but because he hates God. And he wants to destroy all who bear God's name. If you, like Abraham, have placed your trust in God, then his promise to Abraham belongs to you. And those who seek to curse you will invoke God's curse. That's what his love looks like. God shows his love for you by conquering your enemies. But that by itself is not enough. Sadly, we humans have this unique ability to sabotage ourselves. So even if God destroyed all of our enemies and just left us to ourselves, we would find a way of ruining everything without our enemy's help. So more is needed than simply destroying our enemies. Which leads us to the second way God has shown us his love for us, by humbling us. 
This takes us back to verse 2 in Israel's question, How have you loved us? You see, on the one hand, God can talk about loving Israel and hating the Edomites, but from Israel's perspective, it's kind of hard to tell the difference between the two. Because life isn't just hard for the Edomites, it's hard for Israel as well. Their history is full of defeat, slavery, captivity. So Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Persia, the Medes, the Israelites have been there. (laughs) Now they're finally back in their land, but life is still hard. There are threats all around. Life is still a struggle. Sometimes the rains come, sometimes the rains don't. It takes everything they have just to make ends meet. Life back in the land is not what they thought it would be. It's not what they expected. And the power of unmet expectations cannot be overstated. People get an idea in their head of what they believe is right, what they are owed, what someone would do if they truly loved them. Think about how many ways people have defined love. I've heard people say, love means never having to say you're sorry. (laughs) You're right. I say sorry to the people I love the most because I hurt them the most. Others think that love means never being called out, never being confronted, accepting, embracing, celebrating anything someone does. Or being given anything and everything they want. In other words, they think being loved means being spoiled. We do this with people in our lives. And we do this with God. We say things like, if God really loves me, I'll get that promotion. I'll make more money. I won't have to worry about finances. If God really loves me, I won't get sick. I won't get my heart broken. My children will honor me. My parents won't let me down. Or how can you tell me God loves me when I lost my job? Is that what you do to someone you love? Why would God tell me not to marry someone I love? Isn't he supposed to be all about love? When you love someone, don't you want them to be happy? People don't walk away from God because they're persuaded by academic arguments against his existence. People walk away from God because of unmet expectations. Because he didn't meet their test for love. They expected life as a a Christian to be easier, and it wasn't. They believe that that they should be surrounded by this force field that that keeps them from any pain and any heartache. But no one wants to admit that that's what they expect because it doesn't sound noble. But you press someone who walks away long enough and you will hear it. Why would I follow a God who let my mom get sick? Why would I want anything to do with a God who's constantly telling me that everything I like is, is wrong? If God really loved me, 
He would have given me a husband who would have been faithful. God says, I have loved you, and they shout, how have you loved me? He hasn't fulfilled their expectations. And they have two options. Surrender those expectations to God or cling to them and banish Him from their hearts and their lives. It might not happen all at once. It starts with rejecting His commands and pursuing whatever you think it is that will give you pleasure. Whatever you think will just numb that pain which can only lead to indifference in worship. You can't worship a God you resent. You might be able to fake it for a while, but eventually you will not be able to stand being in the presence of God or with his people. And you will start finding any and every excuse to miss worship. And that's where Israel was when God sent Malachi to them. We're going to see in the weeks ahead that they were rejecting his commands and that their worship had become half-hearted at best. And half-hearted worship is an absolute insult and abomination to our God. The real question that needs to be answered is not does God love Israel, but does Israel love God? Because rejecting God is the most dangerous decision you can ever make. Because there's no hope without him. So how does God pursue those who are rejecting him, doubting his love and and going their own way? Every dad knows that the only hope for a child who expects the world to bow down and serve him is discipline. Hosea, another of the minor prophets, said this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he might heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Uh, One of the ways the Lord shows love for his children is discipline. Because discipline humbles children. It it brings them low so that they might understand how foolish life without God actually is. God doesn't do this because he'll be lost without us. He does this because we will be lost without him. Psalm 94 says, Blessed is the man... Whom you discipline, O Lord. The writer of Hebrews quotes that verse. And he illustrates it with Jacob and Esau. How fitting, right? The very two that God brings up in Malachi. And the question is, how do you know that God loved Jacob? And the answer is because God pursued him. He wrestled with him. He even crippled him. To teach him that he can't do it on his own, that he needs God. And so there's that night where God meets Jacob uh, as he's getting ready to see his brother for the first time in two decades. And God wrestles with him through the night. 
And finally the sun's coming up and God says, let go of me. And, and, and he cripples Jacob and Jacob says, do whatever you're going to do, but I'm not letting go of you and your blessing because I've got hope nowhere else. And God says, ah, you get it. You get it. It's on that night that Jacob repented. He told God, take everything if you have to, just don't take you from me. I'm not letting go. Esau was rich. Esau was comfortable. So much so that that he came to the point that when, when Jacob tried to give him gifts and pay tribute to him, Esau's like, I wouldn't even know where to put that. I've got so much stuff. My life is as good as it gets on this earth. But Hebrews says that Esau failed to obtain the inheritance of heaven because he never repented. And it goes on and says the reason he didn't repent because there was no place where God pursued him, wrestled with him, and crippled him. The abundance in Esau's life was not proof of God's love. His comfort and his ease were not proof of God's love. Just the opposite. And what that means is that the affliction that Israel is experiencing as Malachi comes to them, the adversity that's, that's making them question God's love for them is actually proof of God's love. It's intended to bring them low and to, and to keep them humble and to teach them their need for God and His grace. God's love for us is demonstrated by bringing us low so that we don't grow proud and foolishly think that we don't need him and we'll be okay without him. But if you have false expectations for what God's love looks like, if you don't understand what his love actually looks like, you will completely miss it and you might mistake his love for hatred. But it is love. God demonstrates his love for us by conquering our enemies, but that alone is not enough. He also demonstrates his love for us by humbling us so that we might see our need for his care and his salvation. But even that is not enough. Because even if our enemies are conquered and we are humble, that is not enough to save us. Because each of us is burdened by a debt, our sin. And the price of that debt is more than we can pay. And so the last way that God shows his love for us is in bearing our burden. This is the other reason we run from God. The burden of our, our, our sin, it brings shame. We have shame about our sin and we run and we hide. And that sin sits on us like a weight, an unbearable burden and we're crushed by it. We heard that in, in, in our, um, our hymn that we just sang, Not What My Hands Have Done. It's the sin that, that Jesus took upon himself on the cross so that he might save us. In other words, he willingly takes the burden of our sin off of our shoulders and places it on his own and says, Father, punish me and not them. When Malachi opens by saying the burden of the Lord, 
Again, burden is a better translation than oracle. It's more than just saying that the Lord is heavy-hearted over Israel's sin. It's telling us that he is willing to do whatever it takes to save them, even if that means taking their burden upon himself, making their burden his own. That's how we know God loves us. Is that not what Jesus said? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The greatest proof of God's love is that he sent his son into this world to bear the burden of our sin in our place. God says, I have loved you. And from time to time, beloved, you will be tempted to ask, how have you loved me? You're going to say, my life is hard and this isn't what I signed up for. I don't feel any different from those you don't love, who don't follow you. You haven't protected me from all pain and suffering and I don't feel loved. And God's response is the same every time. Have I not conquered your enemies, sin, death, and the devil? Anything they rebuild, I will tear it down. Your own eyes will see this and you will know my love. He'll go on and he'll say, have I not disciplined you? Have I not humbled you so that you don't grow proud and arrogant? Have I not let you, whom I love, suffer much so that you might learn humility? Have I not shown you your need for me so that you might never stray too far? Have I not sent my own son into, this, into your world to bear your burden? Did he not take your sin upon himself, though he had done no wrong? Did he not suffer like an enemy so that you might be delivered from the very burden of your own sin? Child, I have loved you more deeply than you could ever imagine. If you're questioning God's love, it might be because you have expectations that need to be surrendered at the foot of the cross. His love means that he won't abandon you and that he will do whatever it takes to help you see your need for him. In the weeks ahead, we are going to see God confront the leaders and the people of Israel. Not because he hates them, but because he loves them. And his rebukes that we're going to see are going to strike awfully close to home. They're going to be uncomfortable, and that's okay. It's just proof of his love. You're going to be tempted to question and to even doubt God's love. It's fitting then that we would end with a visible reminder of his love, confronting our doubt and our disbelief. The Lord's Supper before us proclaims the greatest act of love this world has ever seen. The holy God come into the world to bear our burden, to take our sin upon himself so that we might be delivered from it. In the bread and the wine, we see our Lord offered up in death 
so that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. If you want to see what God's love looks like, you need to learn to look in the right place. Look at the bread and look at the wine. Because in them you see your Savior on the cross. And that is how you know he has loved you. So I'd like Pastor Isaac and the elders to come up that we might receive this gift this morning. Father, you know us. You know our hearts and you know our unmet expectations. You know our temptation to question your love because you have not done what we want, what we think is right, what we believe you should do. How can we ever see rightly if we judge you by our standard and if we are convinced that we know better than you do? Forgive us. Forgive our foolish ravings. And teach us to see as you see, to know as you know, and to recognize your love where it is truly found and to stop looking where it isn't. We thank you that you have conquered sin, death, and the devil. We thank you for humbling us so that we might recognize our need. And we thank you for Jesus, who bore our burden, the unbearable weight of sin, so that we might one day be with you in heaven. We praise you for your love. Amen.